This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 271 from Monday, September 10th, 2012. Who does what in space and astronomy? Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Hey, Pamela, how you doing? Hey, Fraser. I'm doing well. It's it's fall here. We're back with the new season and we're back with, well, it's not hay fever, but corn fever. So forgive the scratchy voice. But this is the uh, the start of our seventh season, seventh year this, doing this? Yes. That, that was an amazing realization I had earlier today. Our six-year anniversary of, of recording. Uh, we were just mentioning this. We started our first show is about how Pluto lost its planethood, and uh, and that was two meetings of the International Astronomical Union ago. So, so the next meetings in Hawaii, that's going to mark that we've been doing this uh, going into our 10th year. So I think we need to plan to be in Hawaii for the next meeting. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Hawaii's pretty close to me. So that sounds good. China, <laughs> where you went, just came back from, was pretty far. So thanks to everybody who sort of put up with us not recording shows over the uh, summer break. We really uh, you know, needed to take that hiatus. And clearly, I think this is going to be the, the trend in the future. Uh, so that's just to keep that in mind. Uh, a little bit of of announcement. One, I just want to remind everybody that we're recording these episodes of Astronomy Cast as a live Google Plus Hangout on air. So you can actually watch us recording. Uh, we've got about 50 people watching us right now, actually. Uh, so if you want to join us, uh, you can just come to Google Plus, search for me or Pamela, and, uh, and we'll create an event in advance. So you can actually sign up to the event. It'll go into your calendar. It's pretty cool. The other thing we're doing, of course, is that every Sunday night we do our virtual star party where we hook up a bunch of telescopes live on the internet and uh, and broadcast our view. Uh, and last night was pretty cool. We had Uranus and uh, Neptune for the first time Yay, you pronounced live. it the way I pronounce it this time. I know, time. I'm caving <laughs> to your politically correct pronunciation of Uranus. Uh, yeah, so we had that. That was amazing. Live, you know, Neptune was sort of the plan, and then Mike Phillips brought in Uranus just, you know, by accident. And we had moons galore. It was really, really fabulous. We had moons. It was, yeah, pretty amazing. So we do that. And then the last thing, just to remind everyone, we actually have mountains of announcements and stuff, but I, I won't <laughs> sort of overwhelm you this time. Uh, we're going to get back with the weekly space hangout starting on Thursdays at uh, 10 a.m. Pacific. Uh, you do the math. Um, and then... Uh, Don't forget, we also have the Wednesday science hours at 4 p.m. Pacific. So yeah, we do about four different kinds of programs every week. So if you want... Space and astronomy, lots of opportunity. So the the other thing, just to remind everyone, is that we're going to be doing the uh, the not the end of the world cruise uh, at the end of the year, and I think the time for registering for that is starting to close down in a couple of weeks. So if you have any interest in joining us on a cruise to celebrate the fact that the world isn't going to end, in uh, and so we're actually going to go to the Mayan ruins and stand right at the uh, point of apocalypse and watch other people's faces. And it, it's not that expensive as far as cruises go, yeah. and it's completely family-friendly. Fraser's kids are going to be there. Yep. 
And uh, I plan to try and kidnap them to go to Disney World at one point. Perfect. Wait so. a minute. It's not family friendly when you kidnap your children. <laughs> go to Disneyland. Um, cool. Yeah. No, so I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So I really hope people, uh, you know, if you're interested in doing that and you want to join us, that would be, be great fun. So you can go to, I guess, astrosphere.org. Astrosphere. Yeah. And there's a link there for the Not the End of the World Cruise. And you can find out more information about it there. So yeah. check that out. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Eighth Light Inc. Eighth Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. Eighth Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.eighthlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thedigit8th. L-I-G-H-T dot com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft. So in the past, if you looked up into the sky, you were an astronomer, or I guess maybe an astrologer. Uh, But everything has gotten so complicated. Now we have astrophysicists and cosmologists, planetary geologists, and even exobiologists. So who does what and how do they all interact with with one another? And if you want to go into space research as a career, which one should you choose? So... What are you, Pamela? I'm an astronomer. You're an astronomer. I, I technically, I have an undergraduate degree in astrophysics and a PhD in astronomy. Not an astrologer. But most of what I do, no, I'm not an astrologer. <laughs> Although I did take a class on astrology so that I can more effectively understand why they're not science. Did you really? Yeah, actually. So it, I kid you not, when, when I was at the University of Texas, the barn that I kept my horses at our dressage instructor hired a high-level local astrology person to come in and give a, I want to say it was an eight-week course on astrology out of her home. It was taken very seriously. There was homework, the whole nine yards. It was just like any university course you might sign up for, except it was astrology. So yeah, that, that was an interesting take on they don't actually understand what it means when Mercury is in retrograde. But it wasn't a skeptical view of of astrology, right? No, it was... no, no, no. This was for people who were seriously trying to learn how to cast horoscopes and and understand. It, it was it was fascinating to get an inside view on not the science. That's amazing. Okay, all right. So now, specifically though, you're an astronomer, and so I'm an astronomer. what 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 kinds of I guess what does an astronomer do? Well, so the the first breakdown that we we hit is astronomer versus astrophysicist. Astronomers are, uh, at the most basic level, people who go out, look up, and their way of doing science is based on an observational view of the universe. So as an astronomer, it's perfectly valid for me to say, we see all these following trends, we still need to define the physics that makes these trends happen in the universe. An astrophysicist comes at it from the mathematical side where you're working up from the basic equations to try and match what the astronomers are observing. And then there's this mix in between where you're doing both. So an astronomer, for example, then would would be the one who's actually looking through the telescope night after night or looking through the data or looking, looking through at the data. The, we don't look through scopes. Anymore. Right. Looking through the, uh, the the data sent back from the Hubble Space Telescope. Yes. And. And I guess 
their catchword would be something like, you know, huh, that's interesting. Or I wonder yeah. what this is. Or, you know, can we zoom in on this? Right. And, and questions get answered using data. And with right. an astrophysicist, questions get answered using mathematics to explain Right. Ho- well, and hopefully explain. But astrophysicists can make predictions that, so so astronomers, you look for trends and stuff, but an astrophysicist is where you build the theoretical model that then can often make uh, predictions. So for instance, the solar neutrino problem, which, which has now been solved, was astronomers noted what the flux coming off of the sun was. We, we had a general understanding of how old the sun is. And... It was the astrophysicists who built a model explaining, well, there's nuclear generation going on in the core of the sun. These are the reactions that are likely taking place. This should be producing neutrinos. And then, to add a new word, particle cosmologists uh, started looking for, or in this case, particle astrophysicists started looking for those neutrinos coming off of the sun, found one third of what they expected. Astrophysicists have to go back and try and figure out what's going on. Um, but then it was the high energy physicists that actually figured out what was going on using new data. And they, so it's an iterative process where you have the data gatherers, the modelers, and people who look up people who look in machines, it, it all works together. Right. And so just to, I guess that's that interesting distinction, right? That you have an astrophysicist will make a prediction. They'll say, I wonder if the universe works like this. Yes. And then they'll sit down, they'll take the math that they already know, and they'll say to themselves, if the universe worked like this, then the math would look like that. Yes. And then you would see things in space that matched these predictions that I'm making right now. And then they hand that off to, say, an astronomer as a collaborator to say, next time you're in front of a telescope, check to see if, you know, you notice, uh, you know, some dark area over there or these galaxies moving towards those galaxies or, you know, whatever it is that they're looking for. I mean, is that sort of an accurate way to describe it? Yeah. And sometimes you get people who who do both. Um, I, I, I'm pretty much strictly an astronomer, but I work with people who, uh, Bill Keel, who's down at the University of Alabama, he recently did a whole series of observations of overlapping galaxies. And as light from the background galaxy passes through the foreground galaxy, you can start to see where dust in that foreground galaxy is obscuring the light from the background galaxy. And you can do mathematical models of the distribution of material within that foreground galaxy that uh, match the observed dimming that you see of the background galaxy. So that's com- combining our physical understanding with mathematical models to match the observations and in this case, it's one person who's taking both the astronomical side and the astrophysical side of the problem in hand. Right. And so then, I mean, I th- I, so I think, you know, in science, you've got probably a very similar, you know, structure between almost all the sciences. I'm yeah. sure you have in chemistry. I don't know if you have, you know, theoretical chemists and then match up with you know, production chemists and so on. But it's that same idea where you've got someone making the pushing the boundaries and the frontiers and making predictions and other people doing a lot of observations. And as you said, sometimes it's the the same person. So then what's a cosmologist? <laughs> so a, a cosmologist is someone who's looking at the universe as a whole. So, so this is where we start taking into consideration 
the the entirety of the universe formed in the moment of the Big Bang. This produced the cosmic microwave background. This produced the initial ratios of hydrogen, helium, and trace elements that we see in um, the most chemically unenriched gas clouds in the universe. So, so cosmologists are trying to build that big picture understanding. Astronomers are typically looking at stars, galaxies as smaller systems. So the, the cosmologist is trying to take everything and look at it together. And you end up with gray areas where you have uh, observational cosmologists who are measuring the expansion and acceleration of our universe by doing supernova studies. You have particle cosmologists who are trying to understand the origins of the universe and how particle physics works uh, using some of the world's accelerators. And then you have theoretical cosmologists. Well, they're, they're the people who are predicting when we look in the cosmic microwave background, we're going to see this distribution of the size of the hot and cold spots. So, uh, so cosmologists are really just astronomers, but they're looking at one specific subset of the science. Um, I, so, I, I'm sure I wouldn't. They wouldn't like me to say that to them to their faces, but well, it's so. So what's what's interesting? Highly specialized <laughs> astronomers. It's it's. it's when, when you consider your subset of data as we're looking at the entire forest rather than the trees and animals living in the trees, um, it, 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 that, that's probably the best way to, to look at it is, is the cosmologists are the ones flying in the helicopter above the forest trying to get the big picture view, while the astronomers are the ones in the forest taking core samples of the trees, catching squirrels and seeing what type of squirrel they are. And um, so, so the astronomers are the ones looking at, at the smaller properties and the cosmologists are the ones looking at the big picture. Okay, so then what's a space scientist? <laughs> so so it, I love looking at business cards at conferences and seeing what bin people have chosen to put themselves yeah. in. I mean, why have you chosen this specific uh, this specific title for yourself? Right. So space scientists are are people who often work more in um, well, space flight, space exploration. They're the ones who are looking at not a planet, not a star, but how do we survive in that place between the planets, between the stars? So space scientists are often uh, people who are working with NASA in manned and unmanned spaceflight to try and define things like, well, how do how how do we deal with heating and cooling properties in space? How how do we build solar sails? Uh, so there's it, it's a it's a lot more of literally dealing with space rather than with a thing and but but they're not engineers um they can be engineers it's so space scientist can be someone um who does a lot of engineering but uh, consider someone who's studying for instance the van allen radiation belts that's that's hardcore science uh understanding the thermodynamics of moving back and forth between the hot and being in sunlight and being in shadow uh exposure to the vacuum of space um all of these different things and then then you add in the people who study orbits that's now celestial mechanics and orbital mechanics um so celestial so would you be a celestial mechanic 
Would that be your title? No. I've never seen that one before. I, I'd be astronomer. No, a celestial mechanic. No, no, no. Would a person who does that be a celestial mechanic or an orbital mechanic? So an orbital that mechanic. that would be an awesome title. An or- orbital mechanic is the, the poor schmo who's tasked with calculating uh, how do you get from Earth to Mars in a low energy orbit um, and where do you need. But will a person actually put that on their business yeah, card? Yeah, totally. Really? Yeah. Orbital mechanic. I've never, I've, cause that, that's got to just get the craziest questions, right? Like, can you fix my car in space? You know? Uh, cause yeah. Like, so, so it, it, there's actually a lot of complexity to orbital mechanics. And one of the members of my original dissertation committee, but unfortunately he passed away before I finished my degree, uh, was Victor Zebehe. And his daughter and I were friends, and, and she told the story of how he basically figured out how to solve the one special case of the three-body problem that is solvable, basically while sitting at dinner, and he suddenly starts playing with, with like the salt and pepper and ketchup on the table. Right. And making a mashed potato devil's tower in the middle of the Not table. Not quite. He, yeah, he, okay. he was much more of a moving object. So, yeah. right, okay. Um, but uh, yeah, so orbital mechanics—they're—they're they're the folks that figure out how do you get things in stable orbits. How do you get them from point A to B? How do you prevent things from colliding? Um, how do you figure out globular clusters? That—that's a one of the most complicated orbital mechanics problems because you have all these stars that end up interacting with one another, and over time, mathematical models show that globular clusters due to orbital mechanics beat like a beating heart. And then celestial mechanics are people who are figuring out, well, how are the stars passing one another? How do you take into consideration proper motions to do a lot of astrometry and stuff? But then you also have astrometrists who are the ones measuring everything. I'm just going to keep throwing titles at you. Please do. I'll stop you every time I hear a new one. (laughs) Astrometrist? Yes. Is that right? So if I say I am an astrometrist, Yes, I do astrometry is the way it would be. I do astrometry. I am an astrometer. And that means I I measure space. You you are the person who very precisely measures the location of things and helps define coordinate systems. So someone who does astronomy, uh, for instance, figures out what are the precise stars that Hubble uses to maintain its guiding. How do we take two different... um, catalogs in the radio and the optical and line them up precisely so so that it's a very important field to do because we don't always have objects that give off light across all the different wavelengths we we use quasars for a lot of different things because many quasars not all but many quasars you can see them in the optical you can see them in the radio but but then you have to get the x-ray stuff on the same system and and there's so many different wavelengths and trying to line everything up is is a challenge all right so there's a few more titles here we've got people who are various kinds of geologists yes Right, and so you've got a regular geologist, rocks, and then you can have a planet, a planetary geologist. And so, what's the distinction there? Well, so isn't Earth a planet? (laughs) Earth is a planet. Um, Did that get decided in the IAU while you were in China that Earth is no longer a planet? Earth is still a planet. They did redefine the AU in ways that I'm still trying to figure out. Right. So. The, the astrometers would be interested in that, I think. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the geology, if you go to the American Geophysics Union out in San Francisco, uh, it's this amazing meeting of people whose jobs vary from 
helping to efficiently figure out where is there oil under the ground to how are the plates on the planet moving to a volcanologist is a very specific type of geologist uh, to what are the comparative characteristics between plate tectonics on Earth versus something like Venus, where it seems like the entire surface doesn't move, but rather just reshuffles every once in a while. Um, so, so at its core, a geologist is someone who studies the surface and internal characteristics of a gravitationally bound solid body. So Earth, not necessarily a planet. Right. Now, gas giants aren't as much the purview of a geologist, but planetary scientists start getting involved when you start looking at gas giants, ice giants and things like that. So that's its asteroids, comets, Kuiper Belt. They're fine with all that. (laughs) Well, so then icy bodies, those are completely different again. Uh, So so everything's complicated. Planetary scientists. Okay. All right. Well, uh, Let's go back to the so a planetary <laughs> geologist, not a planetary scientist, because that's different. I, yeah, mm, planetary geologist is someone who's dealing with with bodies that you can model using geological models. So plate tectonics, volcanology. Yeah. It, you end up using hydrodynamics to understand ice processes, water processes. Planetary scientist broadens that so a planetary geologist can it's like the venn diagram overlap between geologist and planetary scientist so a planetary scientist moves on to take on things like uh jupiter and saturn neptune uranus all of these gas bodies that you can't model the same way but meteorology starts to creep in and matter gas uh, dynamics matters um so it, there's so much to learn. And when you start trying to figure out what do you need to know to do a given theory, what it takes to understand how Jupiter's atmosphere works is radically different from what it takes to understand how is it that Vesta's shaped in this crazy Dr. Seuss way that it's shaped. And so it takes two different types of degrees, two different types of science to model and understand those two objects that we throw into the same book when we teach in eighth grade. So then I guess the last step is the uh, is the the biologists. <laughs> right. So so now we're starting to add in things like astrobiology which which is the study of trying to understand how do you determine if there is life out there among the stars? What chemical signatures do you look for in the atmosphere? How would life throw a planet's atmosphere out of chemical equilibrium? Uh, what is necessary? But but isn't that like the strangest career to have when you think about it? Because an astrobiologist has no access to actual astrobiology yet, and so they can't study aliens. <laughs> right? (laughs) Because so far none have been discovered. And so they can only make predictions. I mean, I'd say they're, they're, they're astrophysicists. They are, you know, they are the equivalent. Theoretical biologists is what I would call them. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. They're, they're the equivalent, right? They're theoretical biologists. They are saying, if you ever, you know, here's what life might look like out in space, go look for that. And, that's and then they cool. hand that off to them. They, they, Absolutely. Their, no, their no, I'm not saying that they shouldn't exist. And I'm just saying it must be a very strange job well, at, to have trained in biology <laughs> and then not have any examples to to look at the thing you've been trained well, in. Well, they, right? they do do a lot of work studying extremophiles here on the planet Earth and saying, okay, where on the Earth do we have this totally insane uh, chemical composition, uh, 
set of conditions. Let's go look there for life and see if life can exist. And and this is where we had Mono Lake, which is extremely rich in arsenic, was searched for life. This is where a lot of people go and look in hot springs. Uh, there's uh, all of the work to look at underground lakes in Antarctica. There's there's lots of places that that we see as models for trying to understand what life could potentially look like on other worlds. And and hopefully within our lifetime, we'll be able to start going out and exploring Titan and Europa and Mars and looking for, we don't expect to find major life, but we might find bacterial life out there in our own solar system. So then I want to give you a couple of examples of things that people do and you can kind of tell me what kind of a job title you would want okay. to be able to do that so what if you're studying the uh the atmosphere of jupiter planetary scientist or meteorologist is there a planetary meteorologist it's a specialty in planetary science just like studying variable stars is a specialty in astronomy what if you are uh, examining the effects of long-term radiation on astronauts? Uh, that is straight-up biology or space scientist. Not space medicine? Space medicine, yeah, doctor? that's true. Space medicine is a field. I forgot about that one. <laughs> you're like an, you're an astro doctor? Uh, you know, NASA needs doctors, Astrophys- too. Astrophysicist. No. no. Astrophysician. I've decided it's an astrophysician. <laughs> That would be a great title. (laughs) Exactly. Um, What about uh, examining the environments right around black holes? That's probably a cosmologist. Cosmologist? But isn't that like big picture stuff? They they tend to throw black hole studying in with cosmology. All right. And what about uh, predicting what kind of a life people will have based on the uh, year they were born and what... uh, constellation the sun was that's in. not a science but it's called astrology <laughs> oh god almost had you <laughs> but you you took a course on it so you know you know an awful lot about it so cool and so i guess the last question is is that if you want to go into a space and astronomy as a career how early do you have to actually decide i mean do you become a the you know which of them are real that you do really need to sort of hunker down and start learning say astrophysics early on and decide it, or which can you just change your business card and go you know now i'm a astrophysician well right? so none of them can you really just change your business card if you want to make a career change it's it's possible to get into any of these fields later in life but it gets harder the more theoretical and mathematically driven the field you're going into is um I, I've seen lots of people go back to college in their 30s and 40s and go on to have good careers in astronomy as as people who, who dance on that line between astronomy and astrophysics. But when it comes to theoretical work, there, there's actually a lot of research that shows most people have their major breakthroughs before they're 30. And, and so that means you really need to get started in the field as a teenager. And that sounds kind of weird to say, but going into astronomy and getting into the top theoretical programs is such a highly competitive field that nowadays they're looking for people who've been publishing research papers as undergraduates. And when you start looking at that level of competition, um, I'm not top of our field. I'm I'm a perfectly generic American bred astronomer. 
But my high school job was reducing VLA data, working at Haystack Observatory and measuring Stokes parameters of T-Tori stars using Haystack data. My college job, I was publishing papers working at Michigan State University on variable stars. It's this sort of starting very early background that unfortunately is necessary when there might only be 10 positions in the entire United States for what you want to do once you get your PhD. Right. And so, for example, if you want to be a planetary geologist, you've got to focus on geology and then start incorporating that planetary geology pretty early on. Yeah. And and so and go to the right and school. Go to the right school. Really so so while while you can for the non-theoretical in here, planetary does count. You can go back to college in your 30s and 40s. You can get a job working in the field. The observational stuff is much easier to get into. When you start getting into the theoretical modeling, there's so much to learn because you have to know all of the observational science, you have to know all of the mathematics, and you have to be able to do the computer models. That's a lifetime of work to get there. And right. and so it, it depends on what you want to do. But there are ways later in life to become a professional in these fields as long as you're not trying to become Albert Einstein in these fields later in life. And which one would you say is the hardest of all of them? Uh, people like, who do theoretical the all... magnetohydrodynamics. So that would be a... People who study magnetic fields. No, no, no. What's the name? What's their name? Like if it had a business card. A theoretical astrophysicist. Not a not a theoretical hydro. No, magnetohydrodynamics is a subfield of astrophysics. Right, but the one that if you showed them person's business card, they would just like whoa. People, I think, are most whoa, as you put it, um, involving theoretical cosmology because that that's kind of the sexiest one. But the thing about theoretical cosmology is you're allowed to make stuff up because not all the theories are testable. This is where that's your job. Yeah, it's your job to make up stuff that can't be proven. What I love about theoretical astrophysics is it does generally lead to provable theories. Yeah, yeah, they, they're forced to make predictions that can be tested. Yeah, cosmology, you can make stuff up. It just has to be based in math. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Pamela. It is, it is great to be back recording with you again, and I look forward to a whole new and exciting season of Astronomy Cast and all the other stuff that we're working on. So thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Sounds great, Fraser. Talk to you later. This has been Astronomy Cast, a weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos. Show notes and transcripts for every episode are available on our website. Check it out at astronomycast.com. You can send us any comments, questions, or feedback to info at astronomycast.com. We read every email. The show is a nonprofit educational resource provided by Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. We're supported through the kind donations of listeners like you. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. taxpayers. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend it to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Music is provided by Travis Searle. The show was edited by Preston Gibson. Astronomy Cast is produced at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville with generous support from Universe Today.